can be referred to as a creation psalm. Anybody know what a creation psalm is? Yeah, it's about creation, what you might think, right? Or it contains elements of creation. I'm going to have you guess. How many psalms are there? Anybody know? 150. 150, right. How many uh, of those psalms address creation? (laughs) How many of those psalms address creation? Anybody want to take a guess? 149. No, well, not even close. (laughs) Actually, there's 31 of them. Actually, 32, counting this one. Which kind of gives you an idea that that's an important subject and important uh, plays a role. It's going to play a a role today as well in this psalm. So out of the 150 psalms, 31 of them you might say either are creation psalms or have elements that address creation because that's a significant part of God's plan and it's part of our theology and and other things. Um, The author... It's not really clear. Some just assume it's probably David, and it might very well be. Um, I don't know that it matters a whole lot whether it's David. I think if God wanted us to know it was David, he would have put, you know, moved us to put David's name on it. But um, we're not really sure. So I may, as I teach this morning, refer to David. I may not. I may refer to him as the author, but we're not really sure. But um, let's look at the, uh, the structure and some of the poetic elements as we typically do. Let's look at the structure first so we can get our bearings on this. I would say there's probably four parts to the psalm. The first is there's this introductory call to praise. That's going to be your first five verses. There are five imperatives that he uses to call us to worship. And then he gives us two reasons for the praise. So he's going to call us to praise with these imperatives. And then he's going to give us two primary reasons. The first reason is the certainty of the Lord's plan and purpose. We should praise God for the certainty of his plan and purpose. And the second reason is his faithfulness to his people. So he does that in the first five verses, and then here's what's really cool. He then takes and spends verses 6 through 12 talking about the first item, which is God's plan and purpose. Then he spends the next six verses or so, verses 13 through 19, talking about the second, which is his faithfulness to his people. And then there's this very uh, end where it's just a few verses, verses 20 through 22, that he gives this concluding declaration and trust and a petition to the Lord. It's in some respects where he acts out on the things that he just shared. So again, he's going to give us this introduction called a prayer, or call to praise. He's going to say there's two reasons why we should praise the Lord. Then he's going to expound on those two reasons. And at the end, he reflects on them and commits himself to do those same things. And that's where he issues a call to the congregation because this is a psalm of praise. And so he's going to teach us a little little bit. And then at the very end, he's going to ask us to sort of join him in in his praise. All right? Um, As for some of the poetic elements, let's sort of point these things out. an important aspect of this particular psalm, you can come and join us if you want. Come up in a circle. Come on up. Um, he uses a lot of word repetition, which is common in Hebrew poetry as well. Um, so he uses a lot of word repetition. Look at the word uh, sing, verses 1. Notice he says, sing for joy in the Lord. He does it in verse 2 as well. The second half of that, sing praises to him with a harp. We're in Psalm 33, Dina. Um, in verse 3 he says sing to him so we have sing, sing, sing it's repeated Um, look at the words counsel and plans jump down to verse 10 the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations he frustrates the plans of the people and then he repeats that the counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart from generation to generation so he repeats the words counsel and plan Um, look at verse uh, 13 he says the Lord looks from heaven 
down in verse 14 he says, from his dwelling place he looks out. He's also going to repeat the idea of looking elsewhere by using words like eyes and sees. And so he repeats that as well. Um, he uses the word deliver. Look at verse 16. It says, the king is not saved by a mighty arm. A warrior is not delivered by strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its strength. Jump down to verse 19. To deliver their soul from death. So he uses this idea of repeating words to drive home points. And while, you know, in, in English we often use rhyme. Well, in this case, if you were listening in the Hebrew, you would hear these words and they would sort of stick out. Especially considering that Hebrew is a very, it's a neat language to listen to. There's things that are done with the words and the shapes of the words and the sounds of the words that create um, images and other things. And so having this, these words be repeated would stand out if we were Hebrew. They don't stand out as much in English. Um, but they do here. There are other words that, that he uses and he repeats oftentimes too here. The word word, the word works, the word heart, the word soul. And you can see those in this text as you go through it. And again, that's all part of the poetic elements of this psalm to help us to appreciate it is this idea of repeating specific words over and over and over. Um, metaphors, he uses metaphors. Again, look at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So they use this metaphor to refer to the Lord as our help and our shield. He uses personification as well. Um, Look down in verse 20 and 21. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us. Accordingly, we have hoped in you. So he refers to our soul waiting for the Lord. Our heart rejoicing. In other words, he gives our soul and our heart these, the, almost treats them as if they're human. <coughs> they are human in some respects, but he gives them their own personality. Um, again, just a, a poetic tool that he uses. Um, anybody remember what anthropomorphism is? Yeah, we've, we've had this a couple of times. Oftentimes, the Lord is given attributes of man. He's given eyes in this psalm. He hears, he speaks. Um, we've seen one that's used quite often, which is um, the image of the Lord um, having these wings. And that's more of a, uh, a zoological or a zoo, uh, zoomorphism, but it's very similar in that we give God these attributes of either animals or of humans. Um, and it's a way of um, making it more personal, helping us to relate. Obviously, if we can, you know, somebody, I don't remember if it was Kimberly or Katie this week, asked about, you know, when we see, see God, are we going to actually see him? Uh, well, he doesn't have form, you know. He allowed Christ to come in human flesh that we might have form, we can see. Um, we know that Isaiah saw the throne. What did he actually see? Did he see a form of God or did he see blinding white light? There's, there's questions about what will we literally... It says we'll see him, but what will we see? Because he doesn't have form. Um, and so one of the things that the authors do oftentimes in the scriptures is they put form to it. They, they, they show God having eyes and hands and feet to, because we can relate to that. It's hard to relate to an entity that doesn't have form that we can't see. Um, so he does that here in verse 6. Notice that he refers to the breath of the Lord's mouth. Um, refers in verse 18 to the eye of the Lord. We saw that last week when it talked about us being the pupil or the apple of his eye. And so, again, as we, as we walk through this home, we see those things, it becomes very personal for us. Another um, tool that he uses here is word pictures. That is very common in the Hebrew poetry. Look at some of the word pictures here. I want you to look at verse 8. 
Let all the earth fear the Lord. But then he says this, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Doesn't that give a great picture? You see all the nations rising to their feet, standing, and what does it look like to be in awe? You can see it on their faces. You can see it in their eyes. And so he portrays all of the earth standing up and and being in awe of the Lord. What a great picture that is. Notice he says in verse 7 that he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. That's a reference to his sovereignty, but it's as if he's reaching down and grabbing the waters and pulling those together and holding them. You know, one of my greatest, um, one of the things when it comes to like creationism and proving the existence of God and his sovereignty in that, for me, is gravity. You know, nobody can explain gravity. But yet the scriptures tell us that all things hold together in Christ. There is something there where you almost see God holding all of his creation together. And so that's the picture here, that this great word picture of you look out and you see the oceans. What holds them in place? What keeps them from going over their boundaries? It's the Lord. Um, He gives us another great word picture in verses 13 and 14, which is, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Isn't that a great word picture of the Lord up there? We we oftentimes, when the the way the world thinks, you know, the Lord is just sort of out there. You know, he's this force, he's he's this entity. And yet, the way that the psalmist portrays him here is that he's up there and he's looking. He's up in his dwelling place and his eyes are scanning the earth. What an amazing picture that is to talk about how intimately familiar God is with his creation. It's a great way to describe it. Um, I love verse 15 as well. It's another example of these word pictures. He who fashions the hearts of them all. Isn't that a great way to describe the Lord and how he created us and, and the way that he actually moves within us. He moves men to do things. And it's... He's got his hands on their heart and he's actually fashioning it and forming it. Didn't we have a psalm that talks about that, being created that way? God creating those inward parts. These are all great word pictures that help us to appreciate um, the scriptures. I, th- I think that's important. I have, I've been having this couple of, uh, last couple of nights having this little debate, if you will, by an individual who made a statement on Facebook in regard to a post about, um, you can't take the Bible Literally, there's, there's no literal truth there, and so I, res- so I responded back. I said, well, you know, because he had made a comment that if, you know, you can't take the Bible literally, but yet it's a great guide for life, and moral values, and etc. And I said, well, that's a little strange, because if it's not true, then it's lies and deceit, and why is that a good model for life? And his response back was, well, it's just all allegory. Like, well, actually, no, it's not. It's not allegory. There's very little allegory in the scriptures, but rather there's historical narrative and this other stuff. And I was just kind of poking the bear a little bit, you know. And then he... he first point, yes. You know, but in some respects, I was trying to be gracious and gentle, but my point was, you're speaking from ignorance. It's not all allegory. There's very little allegory. Most of it's true. And then his, he responded back with, um, well, it was all written hundreds of years after those actual events, meaning you can't trust it. And I responded back, well, actually, aside from maybe Genesis and a few other parts of the scriptures, most of it was written by eyewitnesses who were there at the moment. You know, and so it's, it's just interesting sometimes how um, we look at that kind of stuff and the way that people respond and they, they, they don't really understand what's there. And, and um, Anyway, as we look at some of that stuff, we can appreciate the way that it's written and the genre that it's written. And that was partly what I was trying to help this individual understand was that no, you, you don't have a clue what the Bible is like. You probably I didn't say this, but you probably never read it. 
but the genre and all the ways that it's written and the, the way that God does things are important to us. And so that's some great things here. There's one last thing I'll point out here. I introduced a word to you. I don't expect you to remember it. I think last week or the week before. Another tool that's used by the psalmist sometimes is something called metonym. And what that basically means is where they take a word or a concept and they substitute it for something else. Look at verse um, 6. Look at verse 6. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. What do you suppose he's referring to there? The breath of his mouth. Are we to take it literally as breath? No, it means the word of God, right? And so he's substituted, instead of just coming right out and saying the word, he says the word first, but then he repeats that same thing with this idea that it's the breath. It's a substitution. You take something else. And we know because when we speak, what happens? That breath comes out. There's air that comes out, right? Um, look at verse 17. This is probably a, a little bit better example, but a horse is a false hope for victory. Do you think he's really talking about a horse there? What do you suppose he's... What do you think the word horse there really represents? A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. A horse refers to chariots. It's a military term in this case. And so instead of just coming right out and saying, well, a military is a false hope. Just because you have a military doesn't mean you're going to win. Well, he doesn't just say that. Why? He's going to be a little more colorful. So he, he looks at it and says, you know, militaries oftentimes have chariots. Those are their tanks. And so he uses that instead. And today it might say, you know, a tank or a gun is not um, assurance of victory. And so that's actually, there's a technical term for that. Mentonym. It's a substitution. All right. So let's go ahead and see if we can walk through this and see if we can appreciate um, exactly what it is that the author is going to teach us today. Let's look at the first five verses here. I'm going to go ahead and read these. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. What do you suppose He's telling us to do there? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? There are five commands that He gives us here. The first one... And actually, we'll look at these things. There's a lesson we can learn in each one of these five commands. These are all imperatives in the Hebrew. The first one is, he says, Sing for joy in the Lord. Which means our praise should be a byproduct of the joy that we have in the Lord. It's the first thing he teaches us here. Notice that this is aimed specifically at God's people. He says, Oh, you righteous ones. Second, notice that we're to praise the Lord because it's fitting or appropriate. Notice that he says, praise is becoming to the upright. What does it mean for something to be becoming? If I say this, very becoming of you. We use it. Does anybody know what it means? It's a good thing or it works well for you. Yeah, it's appropriate. It's what you might expect. And so what he's saying is we're supposed to praise the Lord as a byproduct of our joy because it's becoming. It's what you would expect of God's people. Um, it's hard to praise from a place of absence or no relationship. Our praise is driven because of the joy that we have in the Lord. You know, one of the things that I mentioned as I prayed this morning was, I know what it's like to show up for church every Sunday morning because it's just what you do. I had no relationship with Christ. So going to church on Sunday mornings was kind of a drag. 
But I did it because we went. And I remember growing up, four kids, mom and dad, were like, oh, I gotta go to church again. You know? But we did because we did it as a family. I had no joy in being there. I love doing this. I love coming together to praise God because of what He's done. It, it's, it's, it's becoming. It's what's expected. And so He says here, we're supposed to praise Him as a byproduct of our joy because it's becoming. It's what's expected. It's what you would look at a believer and you would expect them to be like. I, one thing I, I don't understand oftentimes, I want to come across Christians who ooze pessimism. The opposite of joy. Now, I know it happens. And there are times where we suffer, we have grief, we're not always joyous, but on average you would expect the believer to be joyous. Um, And there are all kinds of reasons why maybe they struggle with that sometimes. Um, But we should praise him out of an abundance of the joy that we have. That's the first thing we find in the imperative to sing. Second thing we might learn from this is that um, our praise should be built on thanksgiving. Look at verse 2. It says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. He sticks that right in the middle of this, sing, 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 but he throws in thanksgiving. Now, why is that? Scriptures tell us that thanksgiving and praise are tied together. You cannot separate them. And so the second thing we might learn from this is that our praise should be built upon thanksgiving. If you ever wonder what you should praise him for, Just look for something you can be thankful for. God's not bored with that. He doesn't care if it's the tenth time you've thanked Him for that. You know? Sometimes when we pray and all we do is thanks, we we have a tendency to think to ourselves, it's all thanks, but that's what the Scriptures tell us to do. Thank Him, thank Him, thank Him. And so, the second thing we learn in these imperatives here is that our praise should be built upon thanksgiving. That's where it ultimately starts since we have joy in thanksgiving. Third thing we might learn from this is our praise should not only be about him, but guess what, folks? It says, to him. Our praise should be directed to him. Look at verse, the second half is two. He says, sing praise to him with a harp of ten strings. He's the audience. He's where we direct our praise and our thanksgiving. Um, one of the things that um, I focus on when it comes to the music, and um, Dustin puts most of it together now, but... Um, when I look at the songs and stuff, there are songs that are written about the Lord, and we sing those. But then there are also songs that are written to the Lord, and we sing those. Now, occasionally there are songs that are written, in some respects, about us and our relationship with the Lord, and we sing those too. And I think those are all important. But I oftentimes find that many of the songs that, that are sung in churches are often about the Lord or about us, they're not always sung to Him. And so when we sing them, we have to keep that in mind. That even though we're singing about Him, we should reflect on that. And there's times where I will take some of the songs that are written about Him, and I will change some of the words as I sing them to make sure that I'm singing them to Him. Because that is what we're supposed to do. It's not enough just to sing about Him, just not enough to talk about Him. We should sing to Him and talk... To him, And that's what the psalmist says here, is that we are to sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. What about the fourth imperative here? He says, sing to him, and this is an interesting one, a new song, that's verse 3. I didn't know what to do with this except to maybe say it this way, our praise should be fresh, never stale. Fresh and never stale. I don't know if it was Amy or somebody one time walked into the living room on a... I have this habit sometimes of deciding to go ahead and to get my comedy fix from watching some of the televangelists on television. 
you know, and going, well, this is ridiculous, you know, turning on Rod Parsley or any of the other clowns that, which I should probably be more, like, disgusted and disturbed by it, but it's almost comical at times. Well, um, I had one time a Catholic channel on, and it was a bunch of nuns all sitting down repeating the Hail Mary over in this droning, almost depressing repetition. And it was Amy or somebody had walked in and went, what are you watching? You know, and it was, it was this just droning. And I'm like, how miserable. You know, it, 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 it literally was. And I'm thinking, they've been doing that for thousands of years. And I thought, you know, that's not the way that our praise should be. Um, as much as I have learned to appreciate and love the old hymns, I like the fact that there have been artists and musicians that have taken the hymns and done them in modern form and fashion. I don't want them destroyed. That's not what I'm getting at. But I love some of the, the old hymns that are sung in new, fresh ways. Um, but I also like some new stuff. You know, as much as we have this tension sometimes between, oh, the, the praise and worship stuff today. It's just, and you hear that complaint all the time. And I'll be real honest, some of it is very narcissistic and self-focused. John MacArthur, um, in his church, actually referred, we have a friend of ours who used to play in John MacArthur's band. He was out at MacArthur's church. And he said one of the, their, their, um, their litmus tests, when everybody, when somebody would come in and bring in, we would like to do this song at the church. One of the questions that they would ask, and it was almost routine, and it was in a comical sense, they would say, well, is this a Jesus is my girlfriend song? Meaning that you know, it's all emotion, and it's all it sounds more like you're dating than honoring and worshiping Christ. And there's a lot of truth to that. And so oftentimes those songs, I think, you know what? There should be emotion in the song, but some things kind of cross the line. Um, but with that debate... Some people throw out all praise and worship music. It's just not the, like the old hymns. But you know what? Much if you look at David, many of the psalms are filled with theology, but there are many psalms that are simply filled with his emotion and his reflection upon Christ, and we get theology from that. God is honored by that. And so I find myself looking at old and new. I like some new stuff. It's fresh. It's new. And here it does tell us, sing a new song to him. <coughs> God uses people today. You know, there's, there's a husband-wife team, the Gettys, who um, have written what I'm going to call newer-style hymns. They're written in the fashion of old hymns. And some of them are fantastic. In fact, I think they were just down at the uh, Creation Museum for a concert. Um, I love some of their stuff. It's new. It's fresh. It still speaks of the same God we've always worshipped. And God is honored by that. And so we see that with the psalmist here telling us in verse 3, Sing him a new song. I think that's good. The fifth and final imperative here, he says, play skillfully, verse 3, the second half, play skillfully with a shout of joy. The word skillfully there generally means to play something well, to make it pleasing. Some, I think, misinterpret this as everything we do has to be done with excellence. And they use that to turn their worship time into a concert. I'm not sure that's what is intended here. In fact, really, if you, if you look at the word that's used here and you look at the context, the idea here is simply... Doing it well and pleasing for the Lord, which simply means that what we do when we praise and we thank Him, especially corporately, because this is a corporate psalm, it was intended to encourage the congregation to praise corporately, to thank corporately. And he's basically saying, make it pleasing to the Lord. And that ought to be the barometer. It shouldn't be, well, is it done with excellence and perfection to where you could put this on a CD tomorrow and sell it? 
Or is it really about making it pleasing to the Lord? There are some, and I know folks who have not been able to, say, use some of their gifts musically because in the church that they're at, there's a much higher expectation. I don't know that that's always necessarily a good or bad thing. I'm not saying you put somebody up there like me that can't carry a tune in a bucket because it could become a distraction. I shouldn't be up there singing, leading a group if I can't sing. I've done that in church before and I've been asked not to do it. So, it's not, again, we're just do it well. We're to do it well and make it pleasing to the Lord. So we've got these imperatives that he starts off with where he basically tells us, sing, and again, five times he uses the command form of that. Now, in verses 4 and 5, he's going to tell us why. It's not enough just to tell us to do it. He's going to give us reasons for doing that. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, For the word of the Lord is upright. That word for is important because it's now basically because, is another way to translate that, because the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. So we have two reasons here. The first reason is the certainty of the Lord's plan. What do I mean by that? It's going to happen. It's guaranteed. And he says we ought to pray the Lord because his plan and his purpose is absolutely guaranteed. It's certain. The word of the Lord here is a synonym for all the work of God. It's evidenced by the parallelism that's used there in the verse. Um, Ultimately, what he's saying is God's plan and purpose for his creation will come to pass, and we should be able to praise him because of that. Um, He writes that God's plan and purpose is upright and done in faithfulness. The literal rendering of that is it's done in firmness or steadfastness. That's a better way to read that. It's done in firmness and steadfastness. It will happen. It will come about. He's going to expound upon that in verses 6 to 11 in a bit. And so we'll look more at that in verses 6 to 11. Let's go on to the second reason. First reason was the certainty of God's plan. The second reason he says we're to praise the Lord. It's found in verse 5 because he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Now we know what that word loving kindness means, don't we? Anybody want to take a stab at it? You've heard me. It's just a, somebody tell me what it is in the Hebrew. I'll wink at you. It's. <laughs> Steadfast, or not steadfast, loving kindness. Yeah. Remember the word. Sounds like you're choking. Hesed. It's translated in a lot of different ways in in scriptures because, like some Hebrew words, it's a difficult word to nail down with one English word. Some English, or some Hebrew words take a paragraph to describe the nuances. And this is kind of one of them. I think probably the best rendering of that is covenant loyalty. The Lord, when he, when he makes a covenant, he's faithful to it, he's loyal to it. English translations translate it as his loving kindness because there's an element of love to it, there's an element of kindness to it. So the second reason to praise the Lord is because of that. His loving kindness, his faithfulness, his covenant loyalty to his people. In fact, the way that the um, Hebrew is structured in this particular verse is that the earth is full of the Lord's loving kindness because he loves righteousness and justice. He is committed to righteousness. He is committed to justice. He's committed to all right things. And because of that, he's faithful. And the earth is full of it because of his love for righteousness and justice. And again, that's going to be expounded upon in verses 13 through 19. So we have these two ideas now. We're supposed to... Praise Him because of these two things. Let's go ahead and look at that first one. Look down at verses 6 through 12. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read those. 
I can find my spot here. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plan of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. So the first thing he tells us here is that the Lord is worthy of praise because of the certainty of his plan and purpose. God obviously has a plan and a purpose, doesn't he? We find that all the way in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 21. That's his plan. We talk about the scriptures. Dave, Rant, or Dave um, Malin one morning came up to me, I think it was after we had gone through 1 Samuel, and he made a comment. He's like, I-, I get it. I get it now. It's like all one big giant plan from Genesis through Revelation. And the one thing we know about that plan is that it will happen because God is sovereign. And that's the kind of the way he starts out here. Um... He tells us within this kind of two reasons why God's plan is certain. His sovereignty is displayed through his creation and his sovereignty is displayed through history. So his first reason for praising is the certainty of God's plan and within there he tells us it's certain because of creation and it's certain because of history. Four times in these four verses he describes God simply speaking to bring things into existence. you catch that? Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, he says. Second half of verse 6. By the breath of his mouth. Verse 9. He spoke and it was done. Second half of verse 9. He commanded and it stood fast. That's sovereignty. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God said. Throughout the creation account, it's simply, God says, God says, God says. That's sovereignty. He didn't have to touch anything. He simply opens his mouth and it happens. And so the author is describing the sovereignty of God here and saying we can, be a sh- we can praise him because we know that he is sovereign and what he says happens. He descri- describes God's uh, ongoing control over creation by describing his power over the seas. That's the purpose of verse 7 here. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. What's he trying to describe there? God's total, complete control over his creation. If he can control the seas, he can control anything. Again, an example of his sovereignty. And he says, all of that ought to be enough for the entire earth to basically fear him and to stand in awe, to be ready to praise him especially us as his people. So he says his sovereignty is displayed in creation itself. As you look around, God holds all things in their place, controls all things. But his sovereignty is also displayed through history. Look look at verses 10 through 12. Again, he says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. His plans, or the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Do you see what he did there? There's some repetition there, and there's also what we refer to, you hear this before, what's called a chiastic structure. There's also some irony here. Notice he says, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, and he frustrates their plans. 
So you have the counsel, which is their, their desires, their wisdom, you know, the, the thing that they're thinking. And then you have the plans. And he says, basically, that the God frustrates and nullifies those things. But then he uses the exact two same words about himself. Flips it on its head. He says, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. So he nullifies their counsel, but his counsel stands forever. He says, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. So he uses the word plans again. And he says that he frustrates their plans, but his plans go on from generation to generation. Again, it's this little neat poetic thing that he does here where he takes these two words and he plays them off of each other. I frustrate their plans. I frustrate their counsel. But my plans and my counsel, they stand forever. That's God's sovereignty. I kind of love the way that he does that. Again, it's a, almost a bit of... Irony. So what we basically find here is that the God's sovereignty is displayed all the way out throughout history because his plans always come to fruition, but the plans of man don't. And it's because God is completely in control. We see this in the Bible, don't we? Time and time again, God's plan and purpose is accomplished. One of the things that um, I felt like putting in the... uh, this little email or this little Facebook conversation I was, I've been having the last couple of days here was, you know, it's interesting how when you look at the scriptures, time after time, exactly what God prophesies, God does. Historically speaking, it's exactly what you see. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a scholar to figure that out. My 14-year-old and 17-year-old can see that. Oh, interesting. It says, oh, it happened. That's interesting. You know, everything so far that God says would happen, happened. We still have future events. We fully expect those to be fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies given about Christ, all of which so far have come true. So we see this in history, that God's sovereignty allows him to control and manage events all the way throughout history. Do we also see it in our own lives? As believers, wouldn't you agree that you see God's sovereignty and control? He constantly tells us, don't worry, I got you. And we see that time and time again, don't we? That's a little harder to prove to people, but nonetheless, it's true for us. And so we see these two ways he tells us, praise the Lord because of the certainty of his plan and purpose. And he shows us that because of God's sovereignty in creation and his sovereignty in history, that we can do that. And so of all of, his, of all of what we see here, we should be praising him because of that. In fact, he ends it on this note in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Ultimately, what that means is God's sovereignty is a blessing to his people. Boy, I can't imagine honoring or worshiping or praising a God that always leaves a giant question mark in my mind. I'm not quite sure, you know. Um, It's amazing the picture that the unsaved world oftentimes has of God. They don't see him as sovereign. They don't see him as in control. They see us as having all the control. That's not the kind of God I would praise. I want to praise him because I know I can trust him. I know that what he says is going to happen, happens. And it will continue to happen. 
And that should be not only a blessing for us, but security found in that as well. And so he tells us the first reason to praise the Lord is because of the certainty of his plan and purpose. God has more than demonstrated that he is in complete control. And thank God for that. Um, Our hope is all resting upon God's ability to do that. Is it not? We have no hope if God is not in complete control. In fact, if anything, we ought to be fearful, be facing dread, without knowing, right? But basically, the psalmist is calling upon us to look at God's sovereignty and say, God's in control, His plan and purpose are certain. So praise Him for that. Let's go on to the second reason. Um, He says, the second reason we should be able to praise the Lord is because of um, His faithfulness to His people. Let me read verses 13 through 15 to get us started here. He says, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out. All the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. So the the Lord is worthy of praise because of his faithfulness to us. There's three principles that we see in just... um, basically the seven verses or so that that we're going to read through here. But the first is what I just read. And that the Lord intimately knows every man. When we look at verses 13 through 15 there, it says that He looks, He sees, He understands all their works. And it's because He fashioned their hearts, He formed their hearts. And so, the first principle that we see in that is that the Lord is intimately familiar with every man. He knows the heart of every man. Nothing gets by Him. The second principle that we see here is found in verses 16 to 17, which is that the Lord knows that man can't save himself. Look at verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So not only does the Lord look and see and become intimately familiar with every man, but he also recognizes something about the state of man. That it's not might or strength that saves him. He knows the limitations there because of our sin. So he's not only intimately familiar with us, but he also knows our weaknesses and he knows who we are. He knows how he created us. He knows about the fall. He knows about our struggles. Look at the imagery there, the kings and warriors using their powerful might and their strength. What a great word picture that is. I've been studying through 2 Samuel and... um, well, I've been, it's been rough because it is not, as far as I'm concerned, an easy book to teach through. And he, uh, narrative is always difficult. He starts off saying that about uh, yeah. But this is really, this is really, I almost called, I almost called, I seriously almost called Dustin last night and said, dude, I think I'm going to go a different direction. I think I'm going to book of acts he's talked about wanting to do, you know, and I'm like, because I'm beating my head against the wall, you know. And so last night as I was looking through that, I decided to take a chunk of about three chapters together. Which, you know, it's hard to do that verse by verse. And one of the things that I was struck by as I'm looking at that, you know, I kept praying, I'm like, okay, God, you've got to do something here because, you know, the academics isn't working. You know, the hard work's not working. Um, I'm sweating and not getting anywhere on this, so you're going to have to make me think of something here. And so I began to see some things in there, and one of the things I focused on was, um, here David is with his mighty men of 600, you know, 600 mighty men. Saul's now dead. You would think David would be going, woohoo, finally I get to take the throne. You know, he's been waiting seven and a half years to do that. He could have marched into Gibeah and taken the throne by might. But what does David do? He goes, okay, God, is it time? What do you want me to do? Should I go up? 
And the Lord already told him, you're going to be king. Take it, right? No, the Lord said, I'm going to make you king. David could have marched right in and done that. But he didn't. He waited. He was patient. Because he knew it's not about might or strength. It's about the Lord. And so he basically says, is it time? And then the Lord says, yep, go up. Then he's like, okay. And instead of rushing right to Gebeah and doing the military thing that you would do, go right to the capital, he says, okay, where do you want me to go? It's still all about you, Lord. I'm not going to go right into the capital and just take it. You've told me to go, but tell me what your plan is. It's not about might or strength, and that's what the psalmist says here. It's not about might or strength. Man can't do it. David could not have established himself as king. The Lord had to do it. It's about the Lord's faithfulness to David, and that's what David waited on. The third thing that he says here about the Lord's faithfulness is that the Lord saves those who place their hope and trust in him. Look at verses 18 through 19. He says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, who hope in his covenant loyalty, his faithfulness. Verse 19, To deliver their souls from death, to keep them alive in famine. So the third principle that we see with this here is that the Lord saves those who place their trust in his faithfulness and loving kindness. I love this picture. The eye of the Lord that refers to his awareness or his protection. Much like in the same way if I say to my kids, I'm watching over you. That's what the Lord does. He watches over those who place their trust in him. We're even told that in the New Testament with those who commit their lives to Christ. He says, nothing now can take you out of my hand. Height, depth, life, nothing. Why? Because the Lord watches over. He is faithful. He says, you commit your life to me, I take care of it from there. And so he teaches us here about the Lord's faithfulness. And all of this, again, is in the context of being able to praise him. But you notice he says that this faithfulness, this covenant loyalty of God's, only comes to those who fear the Lord. He says it's those who fear the Lord and place their hope in his loving kindness. Um, there's this interesting dichotomy in the scriptures of God's relationship with the unsaved versus his relationship with the saved. I'm going to say it this way that may startle some, but, I, but I, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to get this right. The Lord is not faithful, if you will, to those who do not place their trust in him. And what I mean by that is this. If you do not place your trust in him, you are not assured or guaranteed of anything. The promises that God has made to believers don't apply to the unbelievers. You have to place your trust in His faithfulness if you expect God to be faithful in those things. Because the only thing outside of that is that judgment of God. And so that's why the psalmist says here that the faithfulness of God comes to those who fear Him. God's loyalty, his covenant loyalty, it's built on a covenant, which means you must be in a covenant with him in order to receive his faithfulness to that. I shared with you this gentleman down at Dayton. We've had some conversations, and I don't believe he has a relationship with Christ. But as we closed our time the other day, he mentioned, I pray all the time. God, I think, hears him. But can he be assured of anything regarding that? Not necessarily. 
Because he's not trusted in the Lord's faithfulness. He can pray. Now again, I have to be careful of that because, you know, when I was unsaved, I was asking the Lord to save me. And he did. Because I pursued him. So he was faithful in that he does say, Come all who are weary, and I will give you rest. So there's that element of faithfulness there where God tells even the unsaved. If you come to me, I will be faithful to my promises. But you need to trust me in order to receive my covenant loyalty to you. And so he spells this out for us. Isn't that the essence of the gospel, folks? I'm going to read some verses to you here. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 25, he says, For in hope we have been saved. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, We have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Colossians 1.27, we see that Jesus living in us, it says, is our hope of eternal glory. The gospel is all about hope. But it's hope in the faithfulness of God. It's not an empty hope. But it's all about hope. And again, the essence of that hope is that God is faithful. There is no hope if God is not covenant loyalty. If God is not faithful to what he promises. There's no hope. If I tell my kids that I will do this for them and they hope I will, the hope is meaningless if I don't do it. We saw at the end of Psalm 27 a couple weeks ago, where David said, I would have despaired mm-hmm. and lost all hope had I not seen the faithfulness of the Lord in the land of the living. Amen. If I had not seen the evidence of his goodness in my life, I would have completely lost hope. Yeah. And so that's the essence of it. And again, all of this now, we can summarize it with this. Not only is the Lord worthy to be praised because of the certainty that he will accomplish what he says, his plan and purpose, but we should praise him for his faithfulness to us. Those are two great reasons. If you can't think of any reason to praise the Lord, focus on those two things. Lord, man, you are sovereign in control and everything you say, you do, but boy, you're also faithful to me. You're faithful to me because I've trusted in your faithfulness. Those are amazing reasons to praise the Lord. Now, he's going to end the psalm with what I referred to as a declaration of trust and a petition to the Lord. Look at verses 20 through 22, and we'll wrap up with these. Our soul waits for the Lord. you notice how now he sort of draws it back into the congregation? He's just described all this stuff to the congregation. He's just taught them, instructed them about why they should praise. And now he says, our hearts. He's now speaking to the Lord, on behalf of the congregation. He says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Now look at this. Let your loving kindness, He directly addresses the Father, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us accordingly or according as we have hoped in you. So the congregation now, David, or the author here, expects that they would now do exactly what he's asked them to do. They say, our soul waits. He's our help, our shield. Our heart is rejoicing. Remember the joy we talked about at the beginning of the psalm? He brings it right back around now. Repeats the concept of joy as the basis for their praise. But then also, because we trust in his holy name, the element of trusting in his faithfulness. So we see a declaration of acceptance of the theological truths that he just laid out for us. 
We hope and trust in the Lord because we recognize that He's our help and shield, He says here. We rejoice because we can trust in His holy name. And then lastly, we see this petition. I love the way that He words this. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us. He's just basically said, we can be assured of the Lord's loving kindness, but then He cries out and He says, Lord, let your loving kindness be upon us. He's just simply asking for the Lord to fulfill the promises that He's made. Very different than the... than. Um, Simply reaching out and saying, you know, demanding things of the Lord because you want things. This is something where the Lord has promised his loving kindness and now we can say, okay, I'm going to hold you to that, Lord. Let your loving kindness be upon us. We can rightly expect that. We can rightly cry out to him and say, Lord, you promised you'd be faithful to me. Because we can expect that. And so what we have in this psalm is, I think, uh, just kind of a neat... I won't call it a formula, but it's just kind of neat how he basically says, praise him. And he like really calls on God's people to praise him and then tells us why. Because the Lord is sovereign, which means he'll do it, but then also because he's faithful to us. Those are two great reasons to praise the Lord, is it not? There's probably many other reasons, but these are two great reasons. They're two great places to start. And think about it. It's becoming to us, is it not? Our hope, our trust is based in, his, in not just his sovereignty, but his faithfulness. And we should be crying out and praising him and thanking him for that. Amen? Before we close, anybody got any thoughts or things they want to add? Since I do the bulk of the talking here. <laughs> things that uh, you saw there that you might uh, feel like commenting on? If not, we'll pray. Yeah. So we often refer to synonymous parallelism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to, yeah. It's actually the, the chiasm refers to the physical structure of it. The type of parallelism refers to um, not so much how it's laid out, but whether it's intended to contrast or complement and that kind of stuff. So what you'll find sometimes with that chiastic structure is that both are used. Where, um, again, it's more about how it's laid out. And you can do, it's funny, this chiastic structure, folks, that he's talking about, could be something like, uh, best way to describe it is A, B, or two different concepts, and then B, A, where you come back out. So it's kind of like a, you go in and you come back out. Another form of this chiastic structure is A, B, and then A, B again. So it's a little bit, it's not like an X as much, but it's kind of interesting. And I know for some that can be a little boring and stuff, but I like it because it helps me to appreciate the way that God wrote it. There's purpose in the genre and the structures that he uses. Much like I said, the section here where he talks about the plans and the council, there's a specific reason why the author chose to play those off of each other because he's kind of, it's like sticking a fork in it. It's almost to poke the bear, as I've said. It's sort of like, all right, these nations, yeah, their plans and council, well, guess what? My plans and councils. And so he structures it in a way to create that tension and that pushback, if you will, in there. And so I think it's important for us to look at some of those things and see the structure and some of the, the poetry that's used. Those are all important. And if we ignore that, I don't think we appreciate Scripture for, for how it's written.